Well, welcome to Village Church. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I have the joy to open up God's word with you. But first, happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. Some of you are tempted to say back, happy Mother. I know it's confusing, but I I am not a mom. Um, Way, way back, about 20 years ago, I think I tell this story every Mother's Day because to me it's hilarious, but my first sermon was on Mother's Day, but I didn't know it was Mother's Day. So I preached on the wrath of God, because what else, <laughs> what else do you do? Don't, at least today, it's not on the wrath of God. It's about betrayal. So it'll be fun. It'll be great. Um, but today, this is a day where we get to praise and we get to bless uh, the moms in our life. And so what I want to do, I want to read a passage of scripture for you. And then I want to just take a minute and pray over some of our moms. Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom. Hey, husbands, that's what you say. Amen. <laughs> And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and they call her blessed. And I love that the author of Proverbs doesn't stop there. He has a word for husbands. Her husband also. And he praises her. Mother's Day is a gamut of emotions. Some of you have lost your moms and you just want her to be here. Some of you, you have your mom still with you. Some of you, they're just really far away. Some of you are estranged. Um, But for those of you who have your moms, anywhere you can connect with them, today is the day to honor them and to bless them. Moms are incredibly, incredibly faithful. There's such a beautiful and unique aspect of the nature and character of God revealed, not just in in femininity, but in motherhood. So let's just take a minute. I want to pray for our moms, and then we're going to jump into Genesis 27 and 8. Father, thank you for revealing such beautiful and unique aspects of your nature and character through the ladies of this room, but especially through motherhood. And every time we experience a faithful, sacrificial, nurturing, persevering, strong, and tender mom, we experience a reflection of of you. And so today, may you comfort the grieving. May you encourage the tired. May you point every mom to Jesus, the true source of every mom's superhuman strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen, amen. We are in um, our third message on a series called The Life of Jacob. If you're new with us, we're teaching through the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be talking about responding to grapplers. Now, I want to just go back in time with you. Ever since I was a kid, I had this habit of rehearsing really hard discussions in my head before I would have the hard discussion or after a really terrible event, I would play the whole like scenario back in my head. But in my replay scenario, I would say all the things that I wanted to say in the moment. Like, if, does anybody else do that in this room? Or am I the only one? All right, good. Um, the, thank you. Yeah. The rest of you are lying. And then, uh, no, I'm kidding. So some of you may not. Some of you just always think the perfect thought and your responses are always impeccable the first time. But, but I had this, I just had this habit and it was sort of like a pressure release valve um, ever since uh, I was a kid. And uh, I'm amazed in my self-conversations what is reasonable? 
Like the things that in those heated emotional moments that my brain says, yeah, that, if you could do that over again, that would be a really logical response. So um, let's actually just define the word reasonable, uh, create some flat ground here. Reasonable is anything within the bounds of common sense and logic. Anything within the bounds of common sense and logic. So can we just have some, some fun together? I want to tell you two stories that have happened to me, one this past week um, and one a couple years ago. And, and, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to um, figure out what is the most unreasonable thing that you could do in this scenario. All right, this happened Friday. I'm driving down the road. I'm going the speed limit for what it's worth. I'm on the right side of the road, not the left side. I'm on the right side of the road, and I look at my rearview mirror, and there is a truck in the distance, but it's moving very quickly, and it is catching up to me. It is also on the right side of the road. Here I am, never seen this truck before, no past history with this truck. As it gets closer, I realize it's not just any truck. It's one of those big man trucks, you know, where the tires are bigger than anybody's car ever should be, like overcompensation for deep emotional problems and insecurities, that that kind of truck. Just kidding. Matt Souls is our youth pastor, but no, Matt, Matt, let me be clear. Matt, 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 I honor your truck. (laughs) Your tires aren't as big as his tires. I'm just saying, okay. This guy's truck was way too big. Matt, your truck is like my, I I have truck envy on yours. It's beautiful. Okay, good. Um, So anyways, this guy's coming. All right, hot hot seat here. (laughs) So I'm driving, I'm just going, and he comes right behind me easily. I'm just going to guess 20, 30 miles an hour faster than I was going. And he pulls right around me, honking his horn, giving me the middle finger, yelling at me, cuts right back in front of me, zooms off. And I'm thinking, what did I do? I'm just sitting here minding my own business, right? Now, let's talk about unreasonable responses. What did I want to do? I'm just going to be honest. Like, I'm not going to play like I'm better than I am. I thought to myself, maybe, maybe what I can do is just drive up and I can accelerate in my Chrysler Town and Country minivan. And then I (laughs) pull up next to him and I'm like, yeah. And then chances are at 99% plausibility, he's going to walk to the doors, you know, like on Sunday morning, like the Lord convicts him. And he's like, I know that guy. He's a jerk. Okay. So there's that. Uh, here's another unreasonable response. Um, maybe what I do is I follow him. I follow him until he stops. Maybe he goes to a gas station. And then I get out, and I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? Whatever, you know? And my favorite one is uh, my wife tells me I shouldn't do this, but when someone cuts me off, I honk. Uh, the problem is my horn is like, meh, meh. <laughs> It's so anticlimactic. So to overcompensate, I'm like, meh, meh. It's ridiculous. But in the moment, right, I'm feeling all of these feels, and they're all rational and reasonable, right? It's like, yeah, that makes total sense. But like logic, logical, clear-headed Michael out of the moment would never, ever counsel myself to do those, to do those things. But it's amazing how reason goes out the window when you're in the heat of emotions and all the chemicals wash over your brains. Um, Years ago, uh, I was working with our kids, there's this uh, little seven-year-old boy. I'll change his name to James for fun. That's not his real name. And uh, so James, I, I'm telling him to move and to go do something. And I wrote down what he said. He's so hilarious and so stupid. He looks at me and he says, without even eye contact, which is even more disrespectful, he says, be quiet and mind your own business. I'm like, I'm going to talk about reasonable right now. Like, let's, like, what are the unreasonable things? I know where you live. The boogeyman is my friend. Sleep with one eye open, James. You know, like, (laughs) 
there are all these scenarios in my brain, and I'm like, if you were my kid, oh no, people are watching. You know, so like, but it's amazing in that moment, all the emotions and the lack of logic that goes out the window. So I want to tell you about Genesis 27 and 28. In Genesis um, 25 and 27, there's this incredible um, act of betrayal that, that happens. And what happens at the end of 27 and 28 is that the author starts showing you person by person how they responded, how they responded to Jacob's deception and Jacob's betrayal. And it's interesting because what you get to see is just very human responses. And then finally, at the end of that, God, you get to see how God intervenes in this and responds. And the issue of reasonable and unreasonable, it's interesting. When you watch every single one of these characters, there is a significant part of me that just empathizes. It feels very reasonable the way they're responding. So if you're new with us to the book of Genesis, let me just give you a little refresher on these two acts of deception and betrayal. Uh, There are two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older, Jacob is the younger. With being the older comes two rights and privileges that are incredibly meaningful. The first is the birthright. The birthright was your firstborn obligation to the vast majority of your father's wealth. You wanted the birthright. The second was the blessing. Before your father would die, he would actually pray a prophetic blessing over your life. And particularly what would happen in this time is that God would respond and the blessing that the father would pray would come true in the child's life. And so here's what happens in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, Esau, the older brother, comes in from the field. He is exhausted. He is starving. He feels like he's going to die. And here's Jacob cooking his vegetarian lentil soup. And, And Esau says, can I have a sip? Because I feel like I'm going to die. And Jacob, being a swindler and a grappler from the very beginning, says this. You give me your birthright, the vast majority of your wealth, power, prestige. When when dad dies, you give me that, and I'll I'll give you a sip of soup. And in that moment, Esau complies. He gives in, and he hates his birthright from that day forward. That's Genesis 25. We fast forward to Genesis chapter 27, which is last Sunday. Here's what happens. It is the most important day in Esau's life. He may have, a, he may have thrown away the birthright, but the blessing is still there. And so this is the day where Isaac, the dad, is going to give away the blessing to the firstborn Esau. Esau goes out to the field, prepares some food. Esau is very excited. He cannot wait. He is how old, Village Church? 70 years old, like he's been waiting his whole life for this. He's already frustrated his brother, but he doesn't know is that Jacob's mom heard what was going on, and Jacob's mom began to conspire with Jacob to steal the blessing. So here's what they did. They got him a little bit tipsy with alcohol. He was already blind. He was old. They tricked him. And before Esau knew what happened, Jacob had tricked him out of both his birthright and his blessing. And let me, let me tell you what Esau is feeling. Anger. Anyone? Can you empathize with the anger that Esau might be feeling in that moment? So here's what we're going we're gonna to look at. We're going to look at each person's response. We're going to look at Esau's response, Rebecca's response, Isaac's response, and ultimately we're going to look at how God responds to this. Let's start with Esau's response. 
What Esau does is he shows us the natural progression or the stages of betrayal. And so betrayal is something that everyone in this room will experience to a degree inevitably. This, this is a part of being human. Somebody will let you down on a massive personal, emotional level. Uh, I've talked with many of you, many of you, and heard your stories, and they are gut-wrenching and painful. Uh, there, are, there is a natural progression for the person who experiences this, and you need to know it because if you're not aware of it, the progression will just take you like a fast-moving river. And there are four stages to this, and the first is mourning, the second is bitterness, the third is malice, and the fourth is spiraling. Now, what you're going to find with Esau is this. Numbers 1 and 2, mourning and bitterness, are going to be experienced simultaneously. In a healthy person, these two things are going to be removed by a little bit of time. But the reason they're going to be pushed together is because in chapter 27, Esau has never dealt with the betrayal and the pain he felt from Jacob from chapter 25. It has taken a deep root inside of him because he has never dealt with his past pain. He is going to bypass mourning almost completely and go right to bitterness. This is a classic story of how undealt with pain comes right back to you, and it is right there on the surface. And many of you who are married, maybe you have a friend, and you had a pain point from the past. If it's never been dealt with, right, when you have a new fight, does it come right back to the surface immediately? You know exactly what I'm talking about, and that's what's going to happen. In a healthy relationship, when something like this happens, happens, you're able to mourn. Um, but if you don't check your mourning, very quickly it turns into bitterness. Let's watch each of these stages unfold one at a time. Stage one is mourning. This is genuine hurt and sadness. Genesis 27 verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father that he had given away not just the birthright but the blessing, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. I do want to just throw this in there because for some reason in American culture and the Christian community or context in America, weeping and mourning and emotions, we just stuff stuff. Uh, I notice with every subsequent generation, there's more of an openness to just kind of the breadth of the human experience of emotions. But to be Christian is to feel deeply. It is to walk into the depths of emotions. Bad things happen when the people of God stuff them. That's not psychological mumbo-jumbo. That is story after story in scriptures of people not dealing with their stuff and it coming back to them. And so part of the Christian experience is we are a mourning people. We didn't just make this up. This goes back all the way to the New Testament, to Jesus Christ. It goes even back further to the Jewish community who lamented on purpose, who lamented so that the sadness in the mourning would not corrupt them and move to stage two. Uh, I want you to notice what happens in stage two. We get to bitterness. Bitterness is mourning turned into loathing. And I, I have a strong hunch that bitterness has been an experience that almost everyone in this room has felt for some time. The challenge of bitterness is that it's super addicting. Like I I remember all the way back from when I was younger and I would rehearse these conversations in my head and sometimes I'd rehearse the conversations and I would be really, really vile and bitter in my like imaginary conversation of what I wished I would have said. And it felt great. Oh, if I could have just said this, if I could have gotten my point across. And it was deeply satisfying. 
It, it was addicting. And, and what you don't realize in bitterness is that bitterness, yes, as Hebrews says, defiles many people. But before it defiles many people, it defiles us. And it begins to ruin us and to eat us alive. And so here's what happens. It says, as soon as Esau heard the words, he cried out with an exceedingly bitter cry. Why did he go to bitterness? Why? Because he never dealt with the Genesis 25 betrayal stealing the birthright. He never dealt with it. That's still lingering in the relationship and it is unresolved. And so immediately he has a new pain point and bitterness is exactly where he goes almost right away. Stage three is malice. Here's what happens in bitterness. In bitterness, you maybe rehearse the conversations in your head. Maybe you play out the things that you want to do to them, but probably never will. What happens with bitterness is when it goes deep enough, long enough, we actually begin to act out on them. And malice is this. It's intent to harm. The extreme side of malice is going to be murder. Um, but malice takes a lot of different forms. Malice is slander. Malice are the, it's those cutting, coursing words that you know go right to the core of their heart. Uh, malice, there's a, it's, a, it's a broad gamut of things you can do to inflict psychological, emotional, relational, or reputational harm on somebody. And so here's what happens. Uh, Esau's bitterness very quickly turns to malice. And here's what it says. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said, and I need you to catch this, to himself. So this is malice, this is intent to harm, but it's in his own mind. And the author wants you to know that that's where, at least in 41, that's where it's staying. He says this, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So here's what, here's what happens. Malice is one of the most dangerous places because what happens to malice, it has this absolutely necessary current that it drags you on. And short of an intervention of God, stage four is absolutely going to happen, and stage four is spiraling. And this is the idea that you are thoughtlessly living off your basest instincts. There is no reason that anybody else can bring into your spiraling. This is going to probably usually require an intervention of God. Let me just, by the way, tell you how the interventions of God usually work through exposing stuff. That's to get caught. That's what happens. And so here, here's, here's what happens. You're just literally reacting and responding without thought. And what was once considered unreasonable to you now becomes very reasonable. Oh, it's reasonable to kill my brother Esau, Jacob, sorry. That makes total sense. In malice, nothing makes sense. And in spiraling, everybody watching you goes, what's going to happen? Here's what happens. But the words of Esau, her older brother, were told, go back one, told to Rebecca. Now it's not just in his mind what's happening. He's talking. He's spiraling. He's letting it be known. Now the word is getting out that he is going to kill his brother. Now, before we go any further and we look at Rebecca, I want to just, I want to take a moment because when I'm, I'm reading this and I found, as I've kind of walked this story through with some people, that I, a lot of people have a profound amount of empathy for Esau, especially in this culture and in this context. It's a very honor, respect-driven culture and context. I get that. Like, this is this is really hard. And it's interesting, as the reader, I'm looking at Esau's response, and I understand it. And if I put myself in his shoes, it's reasonable. 
especially in that culture. There's no police department. There's no FBI. There's no law enforcement, right? This is tribal communities at their best self-policing. This level of, of deceit and betrayal, uh, honestly, often this is the only way in this time, in this place, you would actually deal with it. And Isaac's response feels reasonable. Let's look at Rebecca. How do you, how do you respond if you're Rebecca when you are a part secretly of the betrayal? I want, I want to bring you maybe into a different understanding of the mother's role in Jacob's betrayal, okay? Uh, Rebecca, the mother, hear me, she was the instigator. She was the mastermind of this entire plot to deceive Isaac. She's the one who encouraged Jacob to deceive. She's the one who came up with the plan. She's the one who took the curse upon herself should they get caught. She's the one who commanded Jacob to deceive when he even showed a little bit of hesitance. She's the one who played her husband so that Esau could not rule over her. Remember, if Esau gets the blessing, then he rules over her, and she did not want that. She's the one who made the dinner her husband loved. She's the one who provided the alcohol to numb Isaac's common sense. She's the one who played into her son's basest instincts. I want you to see that she is the mastermind. In fact, there are two different perceptions on Rebecca, interpretations of this, I think are worth, worth hearing. Here's one. What do you do when Jacob is the only witness to your guilt and he's still around? Like, this was her idea, but Jacob is the only one who knows that. What do you do when the only person who knows your guilt is still around? You send them away. And guess what she did? She sent him away. Well, there's another interpretation. What do you do when your favorite son, Jacob, remember Rebecca liked Jacob more than Esau, what do you do when your favorite son's life is in jeopardy and someone is hunting him to kill him? You send him away. And this, this comes back to the question we asked last week. Is Rebecca a hero or a villain? I, the more I read and the more I dig into this story, like she, she is the instigator, the mastermind, and one of the chief villains in this story. But Genesis 27, 43, here's what it says. Now, therefore, she says this to Jacob. She hears about Esau's intent to kill him, his malice, is spiraling. My son, obey my voice. Arrive, free to Laban, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, as if that's, that's going to happen. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Here's what I want you to see. Whether or not she's covering her tracks or she's trying to protect her son, this mother's response is reasonable. In this culture, in this climate, I'm like, you know what, Rebecca, I may not be a mom, but I get it. Let's look at Isaac. How do you respond to your son's relationship-ending betrayal? I want you to hear me. After the conversation at the beginning of chapter 28, this relationship is over. Like, it's done. This relationship is done forever. And here's a question. Um, what, what would you do if your son betrayed you like this? And I think what you're going to find, what he does is unexpected, but it's reasonable. Again, we're in a high honor culture. But one of the things he does is he protects his name, and then he sends off his son. But I want you to look at how he does it, because uh, it shows that Isaac was truly duped, and that he's not necessarily this hard-hearted, terrible guy. But here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 28. 
Then Isaac called Jacob and yelled at him and slandered him. Wait, that's not what it says. Then, then Isaac called Jacob and he blessed him. Is that, is that what you expect to see after your son has just betrayed you? Anybody? Like, that's not what I would do at all. I would not even be thinking in terms of the, the line of blessing him. And then he directs him and he gives them this wisdom, which is priceless. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Why? Because they are evil women. They are pagan women. This is a culture that, that literally ruins every single godly man that marries them. It is just not a healthy group of people on every level. We could dig deeper. Don't have time. Don't marry them. They will ruin you. And, then, and, and here's what Isaac now knows. Jacob, you have a calling in your life. And I get it. Your character cannot sustain this calling. But you still have a calling in your life. And I may not like who you are or what you've done. I may not like all the grappling inside of you and the deception and the betrayal. But, but the blessing and the birthright are yours. Now, you need to get out of here. I don't want to see your face again. Your brother's going to kill you. He's coming after you. But here's what I do know. You've received the blessing, and I can't take that back, and so I'm going to tell it to you again. It's interesting. You don't hear, you don't hear bitterness in Isaac. I'd expect you would. He said, Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Verse 3, he says this, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. I want to draw your attention to the name in verse 3 that he uses for God. He says, God Almighty. Now, it's a, a Hebrew name for God that this is the second time in the book of Genesis, I believe, that this name has come up. And it's a name, if you've been in the Christian world for some time, you've probably heard of. El Shaddai. Anybody want to sing the song? El Shaddai. Okay, I can't. <laughs> Stop! You're killing us! No! <laughs> I am the worst singer ever. Um, so the best we can discern is that El Shaddai means this. It's the God who bends creation. So the first time it's used, uh, Sarah is barren. And the only way she's ever going to be a mom is if God bends creation and brings life to her womb. And then when God brings life to her womb, they call him El Shaddai, the God who bent creation to do the things that we could never do on our own. And so it's interesting in this context because he refers again to God as El Shaddai. And here's actually what this probably means. Jacob, you are corrupt to the core. There is something very broken in you. And yet I know the calling of God on your life to be a blessing to many people. The only way that you're ever going to become that is if God bends creation, if he bends your heart. It's one thing to change a womb, but the, the heart is the jurisdiction of God. And to bend a heart so that the kind of man Jacob needs to be to fulfill the blessing, it's going to be a massive intervention. It's almost like he's saying this. Jacob, all the blessing is yours, but your character cannot sustain it. And the God of creation will have to bend your heart to make you ready and able for this. 
It's going to require a supernatural intervention of God because if you do to person after person after person what you've done to your brother, to your mother, and to your father, people are going to kill you before you ever get to have a family of your own. And the Lord is going to have to go in front of you and he's going to have to protect you from himself. At the end of the day, he's going to have to bend the creation of your heart to make you into a man of God. Finally, we come to the last, I think, most important character in the story, Yahweh. Here's the question. How does God respond when one of his kids breaks everything? So, in my brain, I am transferring to God uh, my experience of being a dad. I don't know about y'all, but my kids have all lied to me at one time or another. Anyone else have that experience with your children? Good. So here's what I want to do in that moment. Come down hard with discipline. Why? To kill it, right? We can't, we can't let that thing fester and grow. And so I want the discipline to correspond to the weight of the infraction. And so as a dad, I'm going to come in probably with some anger, with some, some rebuking words, some guilt tripping, some discipline. I don't know, whatever you do in your basis moments in that time, right? And, but there's this idea, though, that you're like, no, there's something needs to happen in this moment to stop this from happening ever again. That's what I expect God to do. That, to me, feels reasonable. And I have good news for you. God is not going to be reasonable whatsoever with Jacob. And when you watch this, there, there, there may be like a little part of you that's like, that sincerely bothers me because I want Jacob to be in more, in more trouble. Here's what happens in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. He went toward Haran. This is a long, couple hundred mile journey. Uh, he left and he came to a certain place stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now, there's a couple things that you need to understand about Jacob's situation, his emotional state probably right now, to get the full weight of what God is going to do. It seems that Jacob has run quickly for his life to the point where he's sleeping under the outdoors. He tries to find a rock just to get a pillow. Uh, This is probably not your most ideal circumstance. Probably the weight of everything that he has done is beginning to hit him. He's running for his life. He is completely alone. He's out in the elements, and he is unsure if he is ever, ever going to be able to go home ever again. The only thing he has that we can see at this point is he's got the birthright, and he's got the blessing. Who cares if you're a billionaire if you don't have an ATM card or access to the money? Like, who cares if you have the birthright and the blessing but you don't have any access to actually utilize it or apply it. And so even the things that he does have, they actually just don't mean anything. And he is completely alone, crushed by the weight and the repercussions of his very own deception. Verse 12, he falls asleep on this rock and says he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending. Now, just brief little uh, tidbit for you. This is a beautiful behind-the-scenes picture of the dynamics happening between the heavenly realm and earth. This is just a glimpse that we're getting into the dynamic interface and relationship. God is not sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs, but he has an army of angels that he sends back and forth to serve the people of God and to do his bidding on the earth. And Jacob is just getting this glimpse of this um, in this dream. And then it says in verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. All right, easy question. Who is at the top of the ladder and in control? 
Jesus, the Lord, Yahweh, all, 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 all are good. Who is at the bottom and is a helpless spectator? Jacob. So we, we see everyone is in the right, right place. Now in this moment, is it more reasonable for God to curse Jacob or bless him? Cursing feels more reasonable. Good news, people. God is an unreasonable God who defies the expectations of what everybody else thinks he should do. The Lord stood above it, and here's what he says. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He doesn't even know this. What he's referring to is the Abrahamic promise that through this lineage would come Jesus, who would bless through the forgiveness of sins and redemption of the entire world. He doesn't even know the weight and the level of blessing that God is offering him here. And then verse 15, it says, Behold. So we're used to the word. The word is, the word is a strong word. It is meant to kind of stop you in your tracks and just say, gather yourself, listen, soak in what I'm about to tell you, because it's powerful, and it's true, and it's real. And he gives to Jacob four incredible promises I think everyone in this room, if applied rightly, can take home. Here's what he says. Behold, I am with you. Before Jacob went to bed, two minutes before he closed his eyes, do you surmise that Jacob felt like Yahweh was with him? Probably not. Which, I love this because God's presence with you has no correlation to whether or not you feel like it. Right? Because in your worst, weakest moments, where are you? And his position has never changed. And you can run and run and run. You just can't outrun him. He's there, always. Now, the second, the second promise, I can imagine um, Jacob saying, okay, God, that's today, but what about tomorrow and the next day? And here's what he says, and I will keep you wherever you go. Like, it doesn't matter where you're at. Okay, you're leaving the promised land. You come back to the promised land. It doesn't matter. Here's, here's my commitment to you. Everywhere you go, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to be the one who does that for you. And, and trust me, Jacob knows he does not deserve an ounce, an ounce, an ounce of what Yahweh is offering to him in this moment. The third promise is this, and I will bring you back to this land. I know you're leaving. I know they're hunting for your life. But don't forget that this land, bound up in this land, is your heritage. And I have chosen you, I have plucked you out, and you are going to have many offspring, and they're going to fill this land, and from this land will come the blessing that will bless the whole world. I am going to bring you back here. And then he says this, finally, number four, four, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I love Jacob's response to this, because toward the end of 28, here's what he says. He's basically so blown away by what God has done for him in his lowest point. He says, you will be my God, and I will worship you, and I will give you a tenth of everything that I have for the rest of my life. 
And, and what do you do in your lowest moments when you deserve discipline and cursing and you are met with grace and mercy and blessing upon blessing upon blessing? Village Church, you and I are Jacob. We are faithless fools, deceivers, betrayers. That is our nature. And in our lowest, God reaches down and meets us and offers us grace and mercy and blessing upon blessing. I'm sorry, but none of us, because of our sin in this room, I know a lot of y'all and y'all know me, we don't deserve to inherit the world. We don't deserve to judge angels. We, we don't deserve to sit in the presence and the glory of God. That's ridiculous and unreasonable. We deserve cursing. We deserve discipline. That's what we deserve. And every time I'm reading the life of Jacob, I am struck because I look at this guy and I'm like, he is us. Yes, there's like this elitist part of me that looks at him and says, I would never do that. I'm better than him, whatever. And at the same time, when I look deep down in my heart, every one of his core sins and Isaac's core sins and Rebecca's core sins and Esau's core sins, they're just like in me. I don't just deserve the cursing of Jacob, but I also deserve the cursing of Esau as well. I'm like, that's me as well. And all of these characters, they're a mirror to our human condition. And what God is just declaring to us is this. You're Jacob, and I am the faithful one who blesses my people despite my people. That, to me, is absolutely nuts. I've won so what for you on Mother's Day. Craig and I had like 100 of them, but I kind of just stepped back and I said, I don't want to keep you until like, I don't know, 1.30 on Mother's Day, so let's just focus, Michael. Here's my one so what. The grace and mercy of God is remarkably unreasonable to most watching. And thank God. Because if you got what was reasonable, I mean, you would be rejected and disciplined and cursed. It's interesting. I um, little funny little tidbit about myself. I've been pulled over a lot of times in my life. Okay, so some of it, I'd say 60% of it was before I was 19. Okay, that was about 25 times, I would say, from 16 to 19. This is the car I drove. It was a big, ugly, big brown car. I did weird things. Anyways, um, thank God for the mercy and grace of God. One time, it had to have been five or six years ago, uh, 20 was under construction, big surprise, and uh, I got pulled over three times in one month. Three times. Not all of them were speeding, just so you know, but like, um, it was stupid stuff, right? And um, one of them, I was on the phone, but I, it was, I wasn't touching my phone, it was a headset, and they said, no, construction zone, you're not even allowed to be on your headset. I'm like, I didn't know. He's like, doesn't matter if you knew or not, you're still guilty. I'm like, crud. So um, I hate, I hate going before judges. I've said this to you in the past recently, actually. I, could, I feel like I could stand in front of 10,000 people and preach. You put me before a judge, I melt, right? I'm just like, ooh. Like, I can't do anything. Like, I get, every time I get pulled over, it's the same dumb response. I get all nervous. I can't find my, my, my registration. I'm like, is my license even here? I don't even know. Am I going to jail? I, I, all these thoughts. There's, there's backstory behind that. Um, so um, I get really, really nervous. And so when I go to court, which, again, hasn't been for a couple of years, I think. Maybe a year. I forget. <laughs> Block it all out. When they ask me, um, when's the last time you've been pulled over? I'm just like, literally don't have a frame of reference for the last time. I have no idea. Um, 
So they, uh, the judge is handing out like sentences, right? And, and I don't know if you've read the stats about judges, but uh, their sentences are statistically significantly higher the 45 minutes before lunch. Um, as they're getting hungrier, they're getting grumpier. It, this is true statistically. Like there's been research done on this. It's amazing. And so like every time I'm in a courtroom, every stupid time, I'm always like the, like the third to last person to go. And he's grumpy. He's done. And, uh, and so I sit there and I'm just like, ah. Oh. And then I watch all these people get their sentences. Sentences. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, don't do that. That's stupid. Why'd you do that? Right? And it gets to me. I'm like, be nice. I don't mean I'm so sorry. Right? And it's amazing how I want justice for everyone else until it comes to me. Right? I'm just so ridiculous. And we come to this communion table, and here's where we're at. Like, this is like God is saying, you know what? I'm going to give not just justice by having Jesus pay the price for your sins, but anybody who wants it is going to get free grace and mercy through trusting in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. We are Jacobs who deserve to say guilty, cursed, cast out, leave. And yet Jesus says, I'll pay the price for the infraction, okay? And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you all the blessings. I'm going to just pour them out on you. Do you deserve it? No, that's the point. Look how amazing God is. And this, and this is why, like, the grace of God should not create entitled Christian brats. What do you do when you give a kid free stuff all the time? He just deserves it. But when you understand what God is giving you, it's not just free because you're you. It's, it's beautiful in contrast to what you deserved. And when you understand the grace and the mercy of God, it doesn't create entitled Christians. What it does is it creates gracious or gra- or Christians with gratitude. It, it, it creates humility in us, like an awe in us. Like, I don't deserve this. And so every week, most weeks, we come uh, as a church, we partake of communion. Um, not because we believe these elements have some kind of magical component to them, that when we take them, something happens. We, we partake of communion uh, every week to draw ourselves back to this reality. The grace of God is unbelievable, and we need it, and it's only found through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so if you're new with us, communion can be super weird for you. I totally understand that. And uh, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ... If you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, was raised from the dead, is coming back, if you are a brother and sister in Christ, I don't care where you go to church, I want to invite you, would you join us in partaking of communion? Maybe you were here, and uh, you are not a Christian. It's Mother's Day. Some of you, your mom was like, please come to church with me, please. And you're like, fine, I'll do it. I am so glad you're here. At the very least, I hope you had an incredible morning. Uh, if you were here early, we had awesome food back there. Uh, hopefully the people have been super genuinely kind to you. I think Village is one of the most amazing communities I've ever been a part of. At the least, even if you don't believe anything, um, we're just really glad you're here. And here's what we want to ask you to do. Um, nothing. That's actually all we're going to ask you to do. The elements are going to come by. We ask that you don't partake. To partake of communion, the Bible says, is that it's a declaration. And if you've never believed and you're not ready to trust in Christ, that's not something we're going to pressure you into, number one. But number two, just let the elements pass. Nobody will judge you. Nobody will look down on you. In fact, nobody will probably notice. Um, There are some of you in this room, uh, I am confident that you have not trusted in Christ, but you know that you're supposed to. And you have a bunch of excuses. You don't have all your questions answered and a million other things. But you may have this strong sense that that you have never asked God for forgiveness and trusted in Christ. You've never, ever, ever come to him on his terms. And when these elements pass by and we partake, I want to encourage you, if that's a decision that you want to make today, partake of communion, because that partaking 
it's a nonverbal declaration that you believe. And if that's where you're at today, man, love to celebrate with you, love to pray with you, love to encourage you. Any of us up front, um, just come talk to us. We'd love to, yeah, just love to encourage you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of silence, opportunity for you to talk to God. And uh, when that's done, I'm going to pray, and we're going to stand and sing together as the ushers hand out the elements. If you do us a huge favor, would you just hold on to the elements uh, until the end of the song? I'm going to come back up, and we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. So let's have some time of silence together.